Welcome ladies and gentlemen, Logically Faithful, this is Caldoon Swice. My topic today will be on the tr unity of truth and the plurality of religions. We'll be addressing the question of the universality of religion or specifically pluralism. Is uh, the concept that many ways to God a uh, logically coherent one? We'll be addressing that. This is a topic I discussed and a lecture I gave to my philosophy of religion course. I look forward to hearing your feedback on it. If you do find these lectures and these podcasts helpful, I do appreciate your uh, feedback on them, specifically with a good review on the iTunes page. That would help me continue doing what I'm doing and uh, help get the message out. Blessings to you. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoy. Okay, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Philosophy of Religion. This is Keldoon Swice. Uh, the topic today is the unity of truth and the plurality of religions, or more specific, do all religions worship the same God? I will get to the answer to that question toward the end and address some of the concerns and the nuances behind it. See, a number of years ago, I was working at American Airlines. Uh, let me show you that. So when I, as, um, as a participant in American Airlines, I was asked specifically by a customer who came up and wanted to go to the, to the Liberia. So I asked him for his passport, and he gave it to me. And I looked up his passport, and I looked up the details regarding what is needed to enter the country of Liberia. And I indicated to the gentleman that I needed to see his visa. And he told me, I do not need a visa. I told him, you do. He said, I don't. I said, you do. He said, I don't. So we went back and forth on that. And he told me he goes there every month. And he just never uses a visa. So I began to inquire further. I said, sir, are you going to the country of Liberia um, or in Africa? Or are you going to the city of Liberia in Costa Rica in South America? He said, in Costa Rica, of course. Well, it's not, of course, because he's using a term that can mean something else based on its context. So I um, had to clarify that and with the international um, database of passports in conjunction with the world government's agreements. Uh, he did not need a visa of the U.S. citizen to go to the uh, to, uh, uh, South American country of Costa Rica with a passport, at least at the time when I was working. I'm not sure if things have changed now. But now, in regard to God, so when I say I believe in God, do, when a Muslim hears me say that, do they hear me say the same thing? What a Hindu, what about a New Age individual or, or somebody who's Jewish or Wiccan um, or Buddhist? The word God means different things depending on the context. That's why it's so important to ask simple questions. Because if I said to you, um, is the father of Jesus Christ the God of Muhammad? And if you were a Muslim, you would tell me in no uncertain terms that that would be shirk. It's against the very foundation of Islamic theology for God to have a son, because it specifically says in Surah 3 that he does not. Um, he does not begat, nor is he begotten. Or in John 3, and in the, the, the whole New Testament, Jesus himself over and over again affirms that he is actually the son of God, which is an archetype term for the incarnation of the very nature of God on earth, uh, which is the uh, God the Son. So there's a diametrically opposed opposite truth values to the term God in that regard. 
Uh, in the same way in Buddhism, as well as Hinduism, and how they treat the concept of God. So we need to be careful when we say terms and think people are assuming people are meaning the same thing when we say it. So that's why it's so important to ask simple questions. Uh, what do you mean by that? Or what evidence do you have for that? Uh, please explain that to me before we go on in that regard. Uh, now, regarding world religions, there are there's over 7,000 religions in the world. Uh, specifically, there's seven major ones. Uh, for our purposes, we focus on the Western religions, but we also touch on the other major ones, such as Buddhism and Taoism, uh, Hinduism, etc., uh, Confucianism. But uh, there are many religions and there are many adherents to those. So the vast majority of people on the planet have held to a form of religious ideology or mythology that explains the cultural nuances of the world that they're in. Everyone at one level, all major cultures at one level, have believed in some kind of transcendent force that makes sense of and brings unity to their ideologies and what they believe about the origin of the universe, how to live life, which is morality, um, uh, how to deal with the problem of evil, which is theology, uh, theodicy, uh, and destiny, where you end up ultimately at the end of your life, uh, your character, how you form that. All these are based on some kind of stories, whether they're mythological or theological, that explain the world. And a lot of those are based on religious spiritual aspects of that. One of the major contentions in the concept that I'm discussing with you today, which is a concept of pluralism, is the concept of hell. Hell is a place of eternal conscious torment, according to the Western religions of the world. Uh, and this is a problem for many, and it has actually led to more and more embracing of pluralism or universalism. Uh, the concept that God ultimately uh, will be able to snuff out the very flames of hell because the flame of love is much greater than the flame of hell. Uh, so there are many books and aspects that have dealt with this throughout time, uh, throughout history. Um, for example, Athanasius and um, others in the past, great theologians, have held to a form of universalism. And uh, although the concept itself has been considered heretical in Christian theology specifically, Islamic theology holds, holds it as well and as well as uh, Buddhism and Hinduism have some form of hell. So who actually ends up in hell? Well, is it only the Hitlers or the Nazis, uh, the KKK who end up in hell? Uh, or is there something much more nuanced to it? By the way, the concept of hell is not a place of torture per se. It's a place of torment. Sometimes we put ourselves in a form of hell when we torment ourselves. Torture is given to you from the outside in, it's external. Whereas torment is from the inside out. Uh, like, for example, depression. Depression is anger turned inwards. Hell could be a form of eternal depression, where you're constantly gnashing your teeth, as it says in the Revelations of John, regarding what you could have done and what you should have done. It's a form of eternal torment within yourself. Now, if God is all good, the question is, how can he even allow such a place to exist? And the other conundrum for us is that Jesus himself, one of the most loving beings who ever lived, talked about hell more than almost any other concept. So how do we deal with that? Uh, let's take, for example, this uh, particular poem, which I found helpful, called The Galley of Toyodor, 1936. This is the first 
dentistry was painless, then bicycles were chainless, then carriages were horseless, and merry laws enforceless. Many coal cookeries were fireless, and telegraphy was wireless. Cigars were nicotineless, and coffee was caffeineless. Oranges were seedless, thus the putting seed was weedless. The college boy hatless, the proper doy fatless, proper diet fatless. The new motor roads are dustless, our tennis courts are sudless, and our new religion is godless. As you embrace a form of pluralism, what you end up doing is replacing the God of Western theism with yourself. Because of what's nuanced, what's politically correct, what's helpful, what's pleasurable, those are the things that become more important to us than the actual uh, religion itself. And this is the problem that pluralism has led to later on. Let me explain what I mean by that. So uh, one of my um, mentors, Ravi Zacharias, who, who passed on uh, last month, meant a great deal to me, um, put together something with a secularization and, and how that expands itself throughout culture. I found that helpful, so let me expand it for you. Since the time of the Reformation and um, uh, toward the periods before and after that, there was a, what's called the Enlightenment period. In conjunction with the Reformation, what you end up having is a more less, a less um, centralized government authority in the religious sphere. And you have, have become what's called the secularization of society. And secularization is defined as the dethroning of or uh, removing of central authority figures such as the church and the spiritual foundations of society in favor of more government, education, and media have become the more authoritative structures. The scientists and things of that nature have become the authority figures, where in the past it was the priests and the pastors and the imams and the, 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 the gurus. So secularization is because of the onslaught of, of the enlightenment and rationalization and logic and science has pushed religious authorities to the side. So if you were to have four authorities on a panel, for example, a mother, a scientist, a lawyer, a pastor, and a, um, let's say, an engineer, the one who would be given the less, treat the mother, the, treated the less, the least in his authority would be the pastor. Ironically so, because although he knows the most about his theology, he's not considered authoritative anymore. That's just a way of putting it. And uh, it's the, the sad reality in uh, culture has shifted away from the, the, uh, the importance of religion in that aspect. As secularization began to grow toward the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries, what you have growing is pluralization. Now, pluralization is the aspect of multiplicity of different variety of views growing together in the same culture. Now, that wasn't the case in the past. If you were Muslim, the majority of people around you would be Muslim. You would be in Pakistan. Most people would be Muslim or in, in Iran. Same thing if you're in Ireland, the most people will be Catholics, depending if you're in Northern or Southern Ireland. Um, the same thing in the U.S. or in England, you would be uh, secular or you would be more um, prone toward an agnostic position, depending on the environment you're in. But with pluralism, you have all these views coming up together. And with globalization, um, bringing all different types of ideologies in the same melting pot, where you can have a Mexican selling uh, hummus in a street corner, uh, at Chinatown. <laughs> That's pluralization. There's a wonder and beauty to that. 
but with uh, ideas all get cobbled up together, uh, you end up having privatization. That's the next level. Because of pluralization of ideas and, uh, and globalization and the media who has expanded that, uh, privatization makes the as ideas, specifically the spiritual ones about sexuality, about manhood and womanhood, about politics, about ultimately God and heaven and hell, um, because of the multiplicity of different views, we say keep your view to yourself and your community and your religious organization. That's where privatization begins to grow. You, you, um, you're no longer able to share that publicly without being ostracized or de, um, de demoralized or shut down in that regard. Uh, although we live in particularly the West in a free society where free speech is cherished, that's come under attack recently, specifically uh, as the growing of the political left, which is um, intolerance of the tolerant has made it itself an intolerant entity, pushing uh, religious viewpoints to a more and more privatization. As the privatization grows, what you end up having is these ideas become relativized. So the ideas of Jesus being the son of God or Muhammad being the final revelation from God from Islam or Buddha being the, uh, the enlightened one, uh, these become relativized to the culture and the situation and the circumstances from which they arise. So then the truthfulness of religion gets pushed aside. So this is an outgrowth from the cultural zygist of the day, which is the way we see the world or our worldview, from secularization to pluralization to privatization, and finally to relativization of viewpoints. Friedrich Nietzsche was on to that toward the tail end of the 19th century. And in his uh, book, The Gay Science, he astutely mentioned uh, that uh, the death of God would lead to the um, uh, bloodshed like the world has never known. And he was right. 20th century alone had um, more bloodshed, more people killed than any other time in human history, more than all the religions combined, done by, by the way, atheistic thinkers, to be precise. Let me read you a portion of what uh, Nietzsche said. Have you heard of the madman who on a bright morning lighted a lantern and ran into the marketplace crying out incessantly, I seek God, I seek God, as there were many people standing around who did not believe in God. He paused for a moment, a great deal of amusement, with a, with a great deal of amusement. Why is uh, why he lost, said one. Has he strayed away like a child, said another. How does he keep himself hidden? Is he afraid of us? Has he gone on a sea voyage? Has he immigrated? The people cried out loud, laughingly, and all humble. The insane man jumped into their midst and transfixed them with his glances. Where is God gone? He called out. I'll tell you. We have killed him. You and I. We are all murderers. Now how shall we have done it? How have we been able to drink up the sea? He who gave us a sponge to wipe away the whole horizon. How did we, what did we do when we loosened this earth from its sun? Whether does it move now? Whether do we move away from all suns? Do we not dash about incessantly, backward, forward, swaying forward in all directions? Is there an above and a below? Do we not sway us through infinite nothingness? Does not empty space breeze upon us? Has it not become colder? Does not night come upon us continually, darker and darker? Shall we not have to light lanterns in the morning? Do we not hear the noise of the gravediggers who are burying God? Do we not smell the divine putrefaction? For even God's uh, putrefy, God is dead, you know. God remains dead. We have killed him. 
How shall we console ourselves, the most murderous of all murderers, the holiest and the mightiest that the world has there to ever possessed, has bled to death under our knives? Who will wipe the blood from us? With what water can we clean ourselves? And he ends it with this. Lightning and thunder needed time. The light of the stars needed time. Deeds need time. Even after they are done, it seems to be seen and heard. This deed is as yet further from them than the furthest star, and yet we have done it. It is further stated that the madman made his way into the different churches at the same day, and there intoned his requiem editorium decum. When led out and called to account, he always gave this reply. What are these churches now if they are not the tombs and the monuments of God? Charles Taylor, echoing what Nietzsche was talking about, which is the death of God has led to the death of many different aspects of life. He argued in his book, uh, 873-page book on secularism, that why was it virtually impossible not to believe in God in, say, 1500? But now in our Western society, while in 2000, many of us find that this is not only easy, but inescapable. As the growth of the nuns and those who identify as non-religious grows in culture, it is more and more susceptible and easier to embrace an atheistic ideology, if not in practice, at least in thought. Or what great thinkers have called moralistic therapeutic deism. What that is, is a belief in a God that's not here and now and not acting into the world, that's deism and embracing that God merely for my own ideology and my own work or what I can get out of it. So that's why it's called moralistic therapeutic deism, and that's what leans, uh, the, the, the world has led toward in the West. Uh, the Benedict Option talks about that extensively, sort of many other aspects, uh, books on, on, on that aspect. Steve Turner said the following, if chance be the father of all flesh and disaster is his rainbow in the sky, when you hear state of emergency, sniper kills 10, troops on rampage, whites go looting, bomb blast school, it is but the sound of man worshiping his maker. Now you have many people looting, blacks, whites, all the others. We have thousands of um, reports of killings across the United States and Chicago alone. And then you have troops go on rampage. You have snipers kill people and there's states of emergencies happening. When evil happens, Stephen, Taylor, Stephen Turner says, it is but the sound of man worshiping his maker. Who is his maker? If materialism is right, then his maker is nothing more than nothingness or biology, culture. Is there anything more to materialism? This is why, I mean life, this is why materialism, I'm convinced, is false. And this is why the vast majority of the intellectual religious elite and folks and thinkers reject it. Here I'll give you just five simple reasons. There are a multiplicity of others in culture and life. One, materialism, which is actually, let me define it for you, uh, is naturalism or scientism. It's the belief that all phenomena in the universe can be explained using the natural sciences alone. This is biology, chemistry, physics, and things of that nature. 
What I'm arguing is that materialism itself that says that only the physical exists is actually false. And here's, here are five basic reasons why you know, there's more, but just right now. It cannot explain love and ethics. The love of a mother for her child, the love of Romeo to Juliet, the love that transcends cultures, the love that rises from the depth of pain and anguish and shows compassion and generosity and peace and love of the highest order can be explained biologically. Uh, you can explain maternal love. You can explain the reasons why people love. But the, the aspect of the eternal portion of love itself is beyond explanation materialistically. You need to engage in poetry. You need to go engage in ethics. You need to engage in metaphysics. You need to engage in areas of theology and psychology to explain it. Ethics, good and evil. Racism, as we have seen in our culture today, specifically in the last few months, is an evil. However, according to materialism, racism is just another byproduct of the sociological elite or of, of a form of um, oppression, but it's evil. Martin Luther King said that well. However, evil and good cannot exist if only materialism is true. It's illogical, number two. Why? Because he uses logic, which materialism denies anything that's not physical or material. However, logic is not material. The very foundation of society, the very foundation of life, the very foundation of substructure of the universe requires logical coherence, whether I understand it or not. And that structure is held together by logical laws, such as married bachelors cannot exist, uh, mathematical laws. I cannot just walk up to an apple tree and take an apple that has five apples on it. Take one apple and have six apples left. That's just not mathematically possible. It's not mathematically possible because it's, it's in the very structure of logic and math in the very universe. But these things are physical, the laws that is. Now, it assumes there's truth in the universe. It assumes that materialism is true. But it doesn't believe in truth because truth is not a physical construct. Finally, humans are more than their bodies. We're conscious beings. We're self-conscious beings. And we're, we have a conscience. None of these are physical, although you can explain parts of them and understand them using scientific methodologies and psychology, but the aspect of your consciousness itself is not physical. Miracles uh, are aspects where all major religions of the world have miraculous stories of healing and parting of seas and raising of people from the dead. Miraculous stories seem to cast a lot of doubt that we are, uh, we are the only things here in the universe. We're not alone. Okay, let me go ahead and go through four major myths on this question of pluralism and universalism and discuss these. The myth number one is that all truth is relative, especially in religion. The myth number two, that all religions are fundamentally the same. Myth number three, religion, uh, that no religion can actually be the true religion. And myth number four, that only science has a truth and religion is subjective. Let's go ahead and go through these with you. So myth number one, truth is relative, especially in religion. There is no truth in religion. People would not be following religions if there was no truth to them. People, over a billion Muslims, would not be following Islam if it didn't have some kind of truth to it. Same thing with Hinduism, which the vast majority of over a billion people in India follow. Same thing with Christianity. With over three million people, a billion people follow that. 
they would not be following it unless they believed it has some truth to it. And it does have some truth to it. All religions have, at one level, some kind of truth. Otherwise, people wouldn't follow them. <laughs> so um, not all truth is relative, especially in religion. The vast majority of religions preach about uh, ethics, uh, not beating your cat, treating your neighbor properly, taking care of the environment, taking care of yourself. Religion touches on these substructural constructs of human life and, tell, and uh, gives us an aspect of them that makes sense to us. So there's some truth to religions. It's not all relative. Uh, it's not all just whatever you want it to be. And religion talks about the oppression of humanity and how to overcome that and uh, different ways that's done. And that's what religions do. That's what they do. So truth itself is not relative per se, although there are different aspects of truth that, are, that have different points of view. So the question is, what is truth? And I'll define it this way for you. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. And this is called the correspondence theory of truth. And there are different theories of truth, of course. There is the coherence theories, the motive theories, there are different aspects of those. Uh, but for now, um, if I tell you I have a Maserati that happens to be black with silver trimming um, in my parking lot, uh, in order for that statement to be true, I would have to actually have a black or a Maserati with silver trimming. If I told you I had two wives in Uganda, and I didn't have two wives in Uganda, then that statement would be false. If I told you that God created the universe, in order for that statement to be true, God would have to have made the universe. Um, so I would need to ask, ask you the question, is what you believe about God or spirituality actually true? So if I were to tell you that um, at the end of your life, there's an extinguishing where a flame goes out. That would be your, what you think is yourself. The Atman disappears. That's a concept of Buddhism. In order for that statement to be true, I would have to cease to exist when I die. Or the, um, the combination of my experiences would continue to exist, but I would not. I would be reincarnated somewhere else, according to Hinduism. If that is true, then I would be reincarnated. If it's not, then I won't be. And the question for us as thinking beings is to ask ourselves, is what you're teaching me fundamentally in line with reality? Is it corresponding to reality? Or is it a sociological manipulation of elites that are pushing this down on us and having us believe it in order for them to grow in their, in their politics and their sexual gratifications and in their wealth, wealth, greed, and sex? Um, is that why they're doing it? Or is there more to it? So that's why these questions are very important. And I think um, as we pursue our spiritual journeys, we cannot abandon the question of truth. When Jesus himself said, I am the truth, either he was telling the truth or he meant something else. When somebody tells you what they believe to be the truth, you have to give them the benefit of a doubt, unless they happen to be a chronic liar, shooting up hallucinogenic mushrooms or whatnot. And we need to ask, is this person telling me something I can rely on? And I think that's why it's important to question your religions, question your leaders, check the manuscript evidence. Don't just trust yourself, but test even yourself. Myth number two, all religions are fundamentally the same. So I see this bumper sticker a lot. Have you seen these? Uh, 
I'll tell you in reverse, it's not the case. Religions are not fundamentally the same. They're actually fundamentally different and they're superficially the same. When I say that, what I'm getting at is the aspects of the most important things about a religion, such as this belief about God, heaven, hell, nature, marriage, sex, politics, government, etc. These fundamental aspects of religion disagree with each other. So they disagree on the most important aspects of life. So they're not the same. But they agree on the superficial aspects, such as all of them have some kind of traditions or rituals. Most of them have a holy book, a leader, and uh, different ways that they apply that faith to each other. There's similarities there. And they all believe in basic ethics. Uh, the, the golden rule, for example, do to others as you would want them do to you. But even humanists believe that. You don't have to have a religion to believe that. So religions are not fundamentally the same. They're superficially the same and fundamentally different. I recommend to you a book by Stephen Petro, a political scientist and as well as a writer in, in London. He argues that religions are superficially the same and fundamentally different, and he gives you aspects of that. For example, in Islam, the very word Islam means to submit or Islam. It's the problem with the world is self-sufficiency. People think they can exist and get on on their own. Um, and Islam says, no, you have to submit yourself to the transcendent power of God by putting your head to the floor, and that's called prayer. Uh, not only physically, metaphorically, uh, and psychologically. And then you perform the five pillars of Islam, which is a form of fasting and giving alms and traveling to Mecca and things of that nature. By doing this, you're bringing a form of submission of your intellect and your will and your spirit to the holy God. That is how you find it. And it's definitely not done because uh, to God by another individual. God does not have a proxy or a mediator. Matter of fact, God is not begotten, neither is he begotten. And that's actually written on the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem. And this leads us to the next one, Christianity, the way of salvation. Early Christians were actually called the followers of the way. The problem with the world is sin, and sin is a divorce of or departure from or a, uh, ripping apart from the divine and the human, the terrestrial and the transcendent. And that, that rift has caused a decay or a viral spread within the spirit. And that needs to be healed through a salvation and a cleansing. And that has to be done by blood. Because that is what Judaism says, which I didn't mention here. But Judaism says that sin is such a terrible thing, a, a departure and a divorce from the holy God, that requires a blood sacrifice in order to make it right. Now, why blood? Interestingly enough, one of the reasons that in, in the theological tradition that blood is mentioned or sacrifice of animals is mentioned is because God takes sin so seriously and he wanted you, us to see how serious sin was that nothing more than the shedding of blood would have explained that. This is where Christianity comes in, where the shedding of blood of God, the Son of God or God the Son or the archetype of God himself on earth or the incarnation of God, Jesus, is the death of God on earth, showing his love by being the propitiating suffering for man as the mediator between God and man which is fundamentally denied by Islamic theology. So they're different in that regard, not only of the problem, but also of the solution. Confucianism, for example, uh, which is predominantly in the East, says there's a way of prosperity or propriety, which is wisdom. 
the problem is chaos in the world and we need to bring order and sociological order to that. And if the techniques are ritual and etiquette, you need to find some kind of way to bridge that. And that's usually done by governments and societies and father and mother and community. Analects of Confucius are brilliant in how he touches that. Hinduism, for example, in contrast to Buddhism, says you need to find a form of devotion, which is actually what yoga is, a different types of yoga, to find a breaking of the cycle of life, which is of samsara, and to break the cycle of rebirth. So according to Hinduistic mythology and theology, we're constantly striving, striving, striving. And when we stop striving, we stop the cycle. And that doesn't end at death, and it can end much later. That's where reincarnation comes in. And the solution to that is muska, a release from that cycle, a release from yourself where you become that drop that goes into the major, the major ocean of theology or the Brahman himself. As you can see, there, the distinctions between the religions and how they get to God and what the problem is are vastly different than each other. So that eliminates myth number two, that religions are fundamentally the same. They're not. They're superficially the same, but fundamentally different. Myth number C, three. No religion can be the one truth. Um, I don't know if you've seen Return of the Jedi uh, from Star Wars uh, mythology and the science uh, fiction there. That's a picture of Luke, uh, the Skywalking um, Jedi, Skywalker, the Jedi. And he's been hearing the truth that Vader is his father. And he, of course, cries out, no, it's not possible. Well, I found out that many pluralists also would argue that it's not possible that one religion could be the truth. And, and you need to ask the question, why not? Logically speaking, um, all religions can't be right about the same things if they fundamentally disagree. But what if it's possible that all religions are just different aspects of the same divine light that we see differently, like a major diamond that people see from different perspectives? And, and this is a question I would like to pose for you. Merely because somebody says they have the truth doesn't mean you can discount them because you see it's arrogant to say that. See, that's a problem. Uh, even, let's give you an example that was given by Bill Craig once, um, that imagine somebody came up with a cure for the coronavirus or a, uh, an antidote that helps deal with that. And that person happened to be a jerk, uh, an arrogant jerk would you still take the vaccine from him? Or would you say, I can't accept this vaccine. It doesn't work. The man who created it happens to be a low-life jerk who doesn't treat his mother well. It's possible he could be, but that does not negate the truthfulness of whether the, the serum or the vaccine would work. In the same way, even if a religious adherent did say that they have the only way of the truth, that does not make the truth that they say wrong. Follow me? Same thing applies to a pluralist. There are many pluralists or universalists that say one religion can't be the right one, and they hold to that strongly and sometimes arrogantly so. So the ad hominem argument is problematic on that regard. There are many who hold to pluralism. It's, not, it's a growing number. Oprah Winfrey, for example, almost all her uh, shows, whenever they deal with spirituality, in one form or another, she has a pluralist come on to discuss it. Uh, most prominently was Rob, Rob Bell in Love Wins was a pluralist. Uh, Eckhart Tolle was a pluralist. Um, John Hick used to start off as a Christian in his career, but shifted toward pluralism as well. Um, 
and his writings at a very sophisticated level, arguing that God is the pneuma beyond the phenomena, that we only see parts of God and all religions only are walking up the great mountain of spirituality that is God. Um, my problem with um, some of that issue is um, you have to deny the fundamental nature of religions and their, their denial of other religions, such as Islam and Christianity, Buddhism to Hinduism, um, uh, that categorically refute each other. I've been reading a book by, given to me by a friend of mine called The Inescapable Love of God by Thomas Talbot. Talbot and others like Rob Bell argue even that the flames of hell will be extinguished by the flames of the love of God. And the, the, the vicarious death of Jesus is enough to save everyone. According to them, they come from the Christian tradition, of course. Uh, I have a problem with the, how do I deal now with the passages on hell? How do you, how do you address those things when Jesus specifically talked about hell almost uh, more than any other aspect of his um, um, dialogues with other people. Uh, let, me, uh, let me point out some um, hell passages that Jesus himself references that are problematic for the pluralists. And um, in Islam as well, they talk about, um, there's much talk about hell and the torments of the flames. Um, for example, uh, Jesus said the following, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Uh, Jesus also said, there are many who will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous will go to eternal life. Uh, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the violers, sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, idolatry, liars, will be consigned to the burning lake of fire and surfer. This is the second death. These are the words from Jesus himself in the Gospels and other aspects of that. Um, how do we address these concepts when the very religions themselves Talk about them very powerfully. Matter of fact, it's one of the motivations for the evangelism within religions itself. For example, in Islam, there's Jahanna or Jahannam, which is very prominent in Islamic literature. It talks about the blaming, flaming hells, the hells, both spiritual and the physical suffering of that. Um, and the Quran speaks about that over and over again. Um, for example, Jahannam is used 125 times in the Quran, and Jahim is used 77 times. Um, it's a place of burning fire for those who deny God and his people. Let me give you this quote here. Um, this is the, the drying desert plant that is full of thorns and fails to relieve hunger to, to sustain a person. This is a form of food that's given in hell. Here's another one. This is in um, the Hadith of 87. Uh, book 87, 144, The Interpretation of Dreams, Sahih Bukhari, says that Muhammad talked of angels, each with a mace of iron who guarded hell. Um, so hell itself is mentioned in religion as well as in Buddhism, as well as in Hinduism. How do we deal with that? Uh, pluralists, or people like the Baha'i faith, either minimize these passages or try to reinterpret them based on the love of God. And I think there's a lot of attractiveness to that. Because the eternal conscious torment of an, a conscious being seems unfathomable for us. Those of you who have read uh, C.S. Lewis's The Problem of Pain, see, even Lewis himself, a professor Christian, has a deep problem with the uh, concept of hell, although he embraces it because that's what it teaches. Uh, this is interesting. William Clifford uh, wrote a fascinating article on ethics where he argued that in order for you to be a faithful, religious, or spiritual person, 
You need to take into account what he talked about here. So listen closely. Clifford said, imagine there was a ship owner who was about to send to sea an immigrant ship. He knew that the ship was old and not over well built by, at first, that she had seen many seas and climes and often needed repairs. Doubts had been suggested to him and possibly she was not seaworthy. These doubts preyed upon his mind and made him feel unhappy. He thought that perhaps he ought to have her thoroughly overhauled and refitted, even though this, sh this should put him to great expense before the ship sailed. However, he succeeded in overcoming his melancholy reflections. He said to himself that she had gone on safely through so many voyages and weathered so many storms that it was idle to suppose that she could not come easily home from this trip. He would put his trust in Providence, which could hardly fail to protect all these unhappy families that were leaving their fatherland to seek better world elsewhere. He would dismiss from his mind all ungenerous suspicions about the honesty of builders and contractors. In such a way, he acquired a sincerity and a comforting conviction that his vessel was thoroughly safe and seaworthy. He watched her depart with a light heart and benevolent wishes and the success of the exiles in the strange new home that was to be. And he got his insurance money when she went down in mid-ocean and told no tales. Wow. What shall we say of this man? Clifford says, surely this, that he was very guilty of the death of those men. It is admitted that he did sincerely believe in the soundness of his ship, but the sincerity of his conviction can no wise help him, because he had no right to believe such evidence was before him. He had acquired his belief not by honestly earning it in patient investigation, but by stifling his doubts. And although in the end he may have felt so sure about it that he could not think otherwise, yet as so much as he had knowingly and willingly worked himself into that frame of mind, he must be held responsible for it. And Clifford says, let us alter the case a bit. And suppose the ship was not unsound after all, that she made her voyage safely, and that many others after it. Will that diminish the guilt of the owner? Not one jolt. When an action is once done, it is right or wrong for forever. No accidental failure of its good or evil fruits can alter that. The man would not have been innocent. He would only have not been found out. The question of right and wrong has to do with the origin of his belief, not the matter of it. Not what it was, but how he got it. Not whether it turned out to be true or false, but whether he had a right to believe it on such evidence as he did. To sum up, says Clifford, it is wrong, always, everywhere, and for anyone to believe anything upon insufficient evidence. I love that line. Let me, let me phrase it again. It is wrong, always, everywhere, and for anyone to believe anything upon insufficient evidence. Of course, I, I don't entirely believe that. Philosophically, I think it has a lot of problems. But there's a lot of truth to it, specifically in regard to religion. Let me continue. Clifford says in the following, and this is what he closes with. If a man holding a belief which he was taught of in childhood or persuaded of afterwards and keeps down and pushes away any doubts of it which arises in his mind and purposely avoids the reading of books in the company of men that call it into question or discuss it and regards as impious those questions which cannot be easily asked without disturbing it, the life of that man is one long sin against mankind. You need to ask questions of what you believe and why you believe it, especially about faith. Because the ship that you're in may sink, or it may be a ship made by charlatans to steal your money, your body, your wealth, and finally your life. 
So that brings us back to the question of what is it about pluralism that makes it so attractive? It's because it's tolerant. We love tolerance in culture. We want to be open to point, different points of view and not make people feel bad, except those who tell other people that there's only right one right way. So interestingly enough, as I mentioned to you in the previous class, uh, people specifically in the religious right had been oppressing people in the past, telling them that only their point of view is right and no other point of view was allowed to communicate or speak. The tide has shifted. Now the people who are elite are the left, uh, people who lean on the, the political left, who are intolerant of those who they think are intolerant. So what you have is a cancel culture where you cancel anybody or you freeze anybody or you muzzle anybody or you fire somebody or you take away their, their YouTube account or their Twitter account when they speak words that are um, offensive. The problem is people on the left are also being offensive to those on the right. So the, the tide is shifting. Because of tolerance, we have muted the other point of view. In our effort to be kind and open to others, sometimes we have become the opposite. I recommend to you the book by Mortimer Adler, Truth and Religion, The Plurality of Truth and the Unity, The Plurality of Religion and the Unity of Truth, which is the title I stole for this particular talk. Mortimer Adler argues that um, religions are not immune to the questions and the scrutiny in the analysis of philosophical discourse. We need to ask questions of them. Why? because people's lives are at stake. 1997, uh, 1978, in, in uh, Jonestown, South Africa, oh, many people lost their lives, ladies and gentlemen. I think it was over 400 people died drinking poison-laced cyanide Kool-Aid by Jim Jones, who called himself the prophet or the incarnation of Christ. I mean, there it is. Uh, in Waco, Texas, David Koresh claimed to be the Messiah who had relations with young girls, possibly fathered some children with them, and also declared himself to be God on earth. Following a wrong religion or a religion that teaches you what is problematic can be deadly. It's not just within Christendom. Islam has its share as well. ISIS, for example, kills more Muslims than it does Christians by beheadings, by burning, decapitations, it's terrible. It is incredibly important to ask the questions of who it is you believe and why you believe it. And a society that represses that is a society that takes away a civilization from itself. There are different ways of knowing whether you know what you know about it, and I recommend the field of epistemology to you. One way of knowing is empirical knowledge, such as evidence and H2O making up the constitution of water. Reason using logic evidence for your faith or your belief system. Does it make sense? Is it rational? Is it logical? Intuitive or properly basic beliefs are things that you can't necessarily ground because they're automatically assumed to be the case, such as your basic one plus one is two, the fact that I have a headache, or that love is a good thing. These are fundamental to human nature. Uh, there's authority, which is the vast majority of our knowledge. I believe that there's an Eiffel Tower, and I believe in a Paris, and I believe that Paris is the uh, capital of France, although I have never been there. I also believe that there are neutrons and electrons that surround an atom, although I have never actually seen one myself. 
and even looking through a microscope, uh, microscope or electronic microscope, I'm still not seeing it directly. I have to take it on some sort of faith. I have to believe that there are nine planets, possibly eight. I have to believe um, a lot of things about myriology or botany based on the experts who talk to me about it. I think the same thing applies to religion. I have to test the veracity and the integrity of the experts, not everything they actually say, because that'll take me forever and I'll end up believing nothing. So testing the veracity of your, and the truthfulness and the honor of those who teach you, whether they are prophets, gurus, or scientists or professors, is important to your intellectual growth, not only for you, but for your culture. Finally, myth number four. Only science has a truth, religion is subjective. That's manifestly false. Let me show you how. So I recommend my, um, my webpage, Logically Faithful, um, slash 10 things science cannot do, or dash dash between the words. What I listed there is 10 things that science cannot be, uh, like th things that cannot be proven with science alone. For now, I'll just tell you three of them, and I mentioned it previously a little bit earlier. Logic itself is required for you to do any scientific analysis, but you don't need science to do logic. Logic is a very substructure of the universal aspects of thinking and chronologically ordering our thoughts that's necessary for science to even get off the ground. But logic itself is not scientific. It's not empirically found in any, under any rock or any um, atom. Uh, logic is not physical. But logic itself needs, doesn't need science, but science needs logic. Metaphysics, uh, what does it mean to be a human? What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? Um, these are metaphysical questions. Am I free? What does it mean to be free? These are not scientific questions. These are philosophical questions that are foundational in order for me to grow scientifically. Morals. Um, morals are not scientifically deduced. I can find out how you kill somebody, when you kill them, what instrument you used to kill them. But I cannot know whether it was wrong for you to kill them using scientific methodologies alone. I may find the antidote to COVID-19, and I'm about to publish it, but in the middle of the night, one of my colleagues comes, steals my formula, steals my experiment, and publishes it on CNN and Fox the next day with the BBC present. What he did was morally wrong, but it's not scientifically wrong, because it's... Um, Science doesn't deal with moral questions. Although sometimes people like Sam Harris try to make it do that. Uh, there are seven others. I recommend the website to you if you want to see those. It's logically faithful there. Okay. So those are the, um, the four myths I just mentioned to you. And let me uh, close with this story. Uh, one morning, a young man went to take his own life. So he went to a uh, cliff or a bridge, and he was about to jump off. And when he was there, he noticed a young, another young man standing there about to jump, and he asked him, don't do it, he said to him. And the man said, nobody loves me. He said, no, God loves you. He told him, do you believe in God? He said, yes. Are you a Christian or a Jew? He said, I am a Christian. And then uh, the, the man asked him, are you a Protestant or Catholic? He said, Protestant. Me too. What franchise? Baptist. Me too. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? Northern Baptist. Me too. Northern Baptist. Uh, conservative or Northern Baptist liberal? Northern Baptist, Northern Baptist conservative. Me too. Northern Baptist conservative Great Lakes region or Northern Baptist conservative Eastern Lakes region? Uh, Northern Baptist conservative Great Lakes region. Me too. Northern Baptist conservative Great Lakes region council of 1879 or Northern Baptist conservative 
Great Lakes Council of 1912. He said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region of 1912. Die, heretic. So he wanted him to die now. <laughs> uh, sometimes we fight over many things that we don't need to fight for. So the question we need to ask is, oh, I just caught that. There was something flying here. <laughs> uh, we need to be charitable in areas of life that are not critically important. This is what kind of music somebody listens to. Maybe what kind of clothes they wear. It depends on how offensive that is, I suppose. But there are other areas that are important enough to fight for, such as racism, genocide, child abuse, um, pedophilia. Those are terrible things that we need to address, and they're important enough to fight about. For example, TED's uh, wonderful organization um, has uh, some people speaking up defending pedophiles. That's absurd. Now, religious folk who believe in a foundational moral system can unite on that and reject that type of thing as well as um, feeding the poor. Um, there are aspects of theology that are important that we need to um, talk about and maybe even divide about, but other parts that we don't need to fight about, though, or kill about. Let me close with this story. So there's a Hindu um, a myth that talks about four great men that walked into a forest, and all four great men were blind. Each of them came upon a gigantic elephant, the same one. One touched his ear, the other touched his tail, the other touched his trunk, the other touched his leg. And they came back to their respective people. So one blind man said, what I witnessed in the forest was a gigantic fan because he touched the ear of the elephant. The other blind man said, no, it was not a fan, it was a rope because he touched its trunk. Another said, no, it's not an ear or a phone um, um, or um, a rope. It's a gigantic, a gigantic tree because he touched its leg. Another said, no, you're all wrong because he touched its tail. It was like a snake. So the tale says that the four blind men symbolize the religious leaders of the world. And all of them touch different parts of the aspect of the divine or the, the noumenal. And they come back with the phenomenal, as Kant would talk about, and Richard um, and John, John Hick discussed as well. Only an aspect of God. They don't see all of it. I think that's how religions are. Now, there are major problems with this analogy philosophically. Number one, it tells a bird's eye view of the story as if the storyteller saw the elephant. So he's assuming God is a certain way and the people are not seeing him properly. Secondarily, you're assuming that the world religious leaders are blind guides. That's insulting to Muhammad. It's insulting to Buddha, whose very name means the enlightened one. It's insulting to Jesus, who claims to be the incarnation of God and the savior of man. That he's delusional or blind, it's insulting to religious leaders and religious folk themselves. Third and primarily, the story assumes there's no one way for you to know the truth that the elephant doesn't speak back. See, according to great religions, the religious traditions of the world, specifically the Western ones, the elephant does speak. Matter of fact, he speaks through his prophets, through the holy books, and he does communicate. Maybe what he said is just very uncomfortable for us to listen to. So we must learn to coexist, but let's not pretend religions don't contradict. 
when I was a child, my mother used to be a heavy smoker. I'm talking about pack or a couple packs a day. And my brother and I would take her cigarettes, hide them or freeze them or throw them away. She was always mad at us. I think it's one of the reasons she actually ended up quitting. <laughs> but we loved mama dearly. Still love her. But we didn't like her smoking habit. Is it possible for you to love another person and they disagree with you about Donald Trump? They disagree with you about sexuality. They disagree with you ultimately then about God. You can still love that person and not embrace their life, style, their politics, or their religion. Why not? I think that's the only way to build a society and build a civil discourse. By learning to coexist and not minimizing our differences. Thank you.